Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And uh, we're going to continue in this little series I started a couple weeks ago called Home Sweet Home, where we're looking at a short letter Paul wrote to a young uh, evangelist, church leader named Titus. And where we see in this, what we see in this letter, we can also see in a healthy, thriving, uh, godly, Christ-centered, biblically-based church today. And that's what we're going to be doing today as well. We're going to be reading Titus chapter 2, and then next week we'll finish up with Titus chapter 3. Um, but one thing I want us to consider as we look into this is we are reading a letter that was written roughly 2,000 years ago to a young Christian leader. And this young Christian leader was to go and to appoint elders and, and he was to organize these small churches or this one large church. And, and what he was doing is he was leading the church in Crete. And he was organizing them and preparing them and equipping them to do the work of ministry. And what we see in chapter 2 is what we also must see in our daily lives. In order to feel a part of a home sweet home church, meaning whenever you come in here, you are loved, you are greeted, but you are also very valuable to the body here. So let's get into it. And what we'll see is that people, uh, just as they are today, were also uh, very similar in the in, in this day that we're reading about and the expectations of Paul to Titus to the congregants are also the expectations of today. So Titus chapter two and let's go. But as for you, Paul's talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women Likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Um, I don't know how many husbands in here. We could stop right there if you want. We better not. We better not. <laughs> we'll just keep moving. I'll let you guys hash that out on your way home. All right. <laughs> let me just provoke a nice conversation on the way home. Uh, might be a little bit of intense fellowship on the way home, but just c- consider it fellowship nonetheless. All right. Um, here we go. Verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." And the really good part starts in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our good, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He goes on to conclude this section with declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. So we see uh, two big things in the first 11, well, 10 verses there. The, first, the two big things is first, and maybe most importantly in Timothy's um, you know, position in his office here as an elder, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a minister, whatever title you want to give him as a leader, he is to teach sound doctrine. And as you read in, in the middle and the end of chapter 1, going into chapter 2, you're going to see that he follows this command by addressing the false teaching. So he is, he is expecting Titus and instructing Titus to teach sound doctrine. And this sound doctrine is actually going to oppose the false teachers of his day. So here's what you and I must do. I kind of hit on it last week. In order to be a home sweet home, thriving, healthy church is that you and I must preach and teach and, and discuss in life group and in Sunday school and in downstairs with children and around campfires with our, with our youth or even in conversations with each other. We must always be teaching and living and pointing each other to sound doctrine. And what you will find is that that is going to be counter-cultural and it is going to oppose all of the false teachings and all of the different ideologies of our world. That you and I must not just preach sound doctrine. It's not just for me to preach you sound doctrine, but sound doctrine is to be lived out by you. It is to be discussed by you. So what we see here is that good doctrine leads to good behavior. If you have an understanding of good doctrine, if you read the Bible and can understand the word of God, then there is a greater chance that you are going to live and be an example of God. So therefore, sound doctrine isn't just important for me, though it is very important for me or whoever else is preaching to preach to you sound biblical doctrine that does not cater to your needs so much or or tickle your ears. But sometimes we might get into a, a toe stomping match and it's nothing, you know, nothing with harsh feelings. It is just the word of God and maybe your lifestyle or your habits con- contradicting with one another and conflicting. Therefore, there must be repentance and change. But sound doctrine is also to be lived out through you, through all of you. Because in part two of this first ten verses, we see Titus instructing or instructed in how the congregants are to live. They are to live in obedience to God and his word. And we see five categories. We see older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and bond servants. So you might be asking, well, how do I know if I'm old or not? I'm not answering that. All right. Maybe for the guys, I will. Uh, but for the ladies, I'm not going to answer that for you. Now, here's what I will tell you. If you might ask, well, am I considered older or am I considered younger? Um, let's just say if you are sitting next to someone younger than you, you're an older man or woman. If you are sitting by someone that is older than you, in that case, you are considered the younger man or woman. But what Paul is trying to teach Titus is there's got to be order and there's got to be structure within the church. And what he's really wanting to do is he's really wanting to see the older elderly 
congregants, the older, longer tenured Christians, the more seasoned folks to truly take younger Christians under their wing and show them how they are to live holy, upright, disciplined, self-controlled lives. What Paul is really wanting Titus to do is in almost in a way prepare these older Christians because here's what happens and, and I'm not saying it's happened to me, but I hear it a lot. Who here has ever felt like you've gotten older in your faith, you've been following Christ for a long time, you used to serve in a very mighty way in the church, and then over time as you get older, as you get slower, as your body starts to ache more, you might feel as if, well, I really don't have a place anymore. Well, I really don't know how to serve anymore. Guess what? You do. You do. You are to be an example to younger Christians, so whenever they see you, they are they are taught not just by the words that you may speak around the table, but they see how you handle yourself, how you love your spouse, how you carry yourself through adversity, how you face hardships, how you spend time in prayer. They see you. Because here's the reality. We all are watching someone, are we not? I mean, you're watching someone. So you might be sitting here as an older person and think, well, I don't really have any means to serve anymore because I can't physically do what I used to be able to do. I can't be on my feet like I once was. I can't, I don't have the strength that I once did. But listen to me, if you are here and that is you, I'm telling you that there is a very, very important role that you play here. You are to instruct. You are also to educate. You are also to set the example for younger Christians. And if you are a younger Christian here, man or woman, I hope and I pray that you find someone here or you find many people here that you can look up to that are true embodiments of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, and His word. And whatever you do is whatever you find that person or those people, you try to imitate them. You try to be like them. You try to love like they love. You try to serve like they serve. Here's a perfect example. I kind of mentioned it uh, two Sunday evenings ago. I didn't mention it in the morning like I meant to, and I forgot all about it. Uh, but I, but I, rem- I remembered, Adam. Uh, I remembered over the last two weeks. I, I didn't put it in my notes for today, but I remembered what I wanted to say, and I didn't. Whenever you pull up here to park your car, who is the first person you oftentimes see? Chad. <laughs> Chad Govro. How old are you, Chad. 83. And guess what? You don't just see him whenever the sun's shining and the blue skies and it's 72 out. You see him when it's 32 out or you see him when it's 102 out. And what you might not see because you're just pulling around the church and you're going to park your car, but I see it because I'm walking from one building to the next or, or I'm coming in early or I'm, you know, I'm late for that and I'm over here. But what you might see is that whenever it's raining, he's parking you and he's moving to your neighbor next to you and then he's running in here so he could, so he could dry off. And whenever you might, you might not see it whenever it's really, really hot out and, and everyone's miserable whenever they get out of their cars. He's running and he's parking you and he's got some younger men that help him. But what he's doing is he's running inside to get a drink or to cool off for just a moment. And what he do, what he's doing is he's setting an example for all of us that it doesn't matter how old you are. If you have an ability or a, or a, a need is there and you can meet it, you can meet it. But what Chad doesn't do is get to that point of his life where he says, Hey, look, I've been there. I've done it. I'm, I'm out of the game. He says, no, there's a need. And then he instructs Logan or Michael or whoever else is parking cars, Jared. He's probably just, you know, giving them life wisdom or he's just giving them, you know, maybe godly counsel. But what you see is the most 
the most marvelous thing that I get to see whenever I walk out of the house and I come over to here is to see Chad Govro laughing, hitting the back of somebody really too hard and hugging him and, and grabbing him in there and he's holding them close. Why? Because he is showing younger men how to live for the Lord. And it's such a subtle, practical way. Parking cars. Parking cars, or you can look at the, or you can look at our ladies who clean our church week in and week out, who are here faithfully to come here. And, and I'm not going to ask them their age, because I was always raised and never ask women their age. You just ask them their weight. No, no, no. You don't ask them their weight either. Uh, sorry, I got carried away. But we have a few sisters that come in and clean after every service. Every Sunday they come in and clean. And if you were to look at them cleaning now, they don't clean. And I'm not making fun of them, but they don't clean as fast as they did six, seven years ago. Why? Because they've gotten older just like you and I all have. But guess what? They continue to to stay. They continue to serve and they continue to show people that, hey, if there is a need, someone has to do it. And if you have the ability to do it. And I use these as examples of people that might feel as if their duty is almost irrelevant, but they're not. So regardless if you're helping park cars, regardless if you're sweeping or vacuuming or emptying the trash or fighting with the basement door to take the trash out, regardless what it is that you're doing, and if it's so small to you, I'm telling you that you are setting an example to someone. You are setting an example. So I want us all to just realize whatever you're doing and whatever capacity you're doing it, whether you have a platform or a desk or not, you are setting an example to someone and someone is watching you and you are watching someone else. So you and I are always to teach someone else how to live for the Lord. And why do we do this? So Paul writes all of these instructions that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. He goes on to write, and I just read it, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise... Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's probably the most difficult verse in all of that. Young men to be self-controlled. Showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and a sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why does he instruct all this? Why is this actually important? It is important that you and I find order in our lives. And we see church order. And there is a way to do this life as Christians. Why is that important? Because the good part starting in verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. It is because you and I have been saved from our sin. Therefore, we ought to live with order and discipline and self-controlled and upright. And he goes on to say, for salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So let me just hit on verse 11 really quick. Paul writes that, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I'm going to tell you what that means and what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that every single person that walks this earth will receive salvation and be saved. But what it does mean is that the salvation of God has appeared through Christ Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore, anyone in the world that calls upon his name shall be what? Saved. That God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would be 
save. Not that every person would be saved because the Bible is very clear. Jesus said in himself that the wide gate that leads to destruction is traveled by many, right? And that the narrow gate which leads to eternal life is traveled by few. So Jesus says the wide gate that leads to, to death, the narrow gate leads to life. Paul is not saying that every single person is now going to be saved. But what Paul is saying is that there are, is now a way in which we can be saved and that the grace of God truly appeared in Christ as he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, gave himself in our place to die a gruesome death, and then on the third day rose from the dead. Therefore, you and I have a means to salvation. There is now a way to live forever and ever. But here is where it really gets Maybe a little personal. Are you truly living for God now or just anticipating the moment in which you see him face to face? Because if we are not careful, what we will do is we will spend the rest of our lives wandering around life, living however we want, and then think, well, whenever I get old or whenever I get to that point of of life or whenever I find myself on my deathbed, I will call upon the name of Jesus and ask him to forgive me and, and I will receive this eternal life. What Paul is actually instructing Timothy, or sorry, Titus here, is that you and I are to do this and we are to live as he goes on to say training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self right up self-controlled upright and godly lives in the what what does the bible say there in the present age which means the here and now here and now are you living are you training yourself to renounce ungodliness and to renounce something is to completely reject it to completely separate yourself from it almost sounds like repentance. To completely separate yourself from all forms of ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So right here, right now, are you truly living according to the passions of this flesh? Are you living according to the ways of the world? Are you truly training yourself in godliness or not? Because it is very important. Because if we are training ourselves and, and renouncing ungodliness, he says that we will then be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which Jesus said that one of these days he's going to come back, and he's going to come back in a form of what? Glory. He's going to come back. And, and Jesus uses the parable of the ten virgins, five who brought oil, if you remember, and five that did not. And if you remember, the five that did not bring any oil went to go get oil. Whenever they returned, the door was shut and the bridegroom had come. And those, those five were cast away. And what it, you can almost read in this a, a little bit of that as the text mirrors one another whenever Paul is saying that we should be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our God and Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So you and I have to ask ourselves, are we truly living, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, or are we comfortably living in our sin? And here's what I want you to know. If you will comfortably live in your sin and reject to pursue righteousness, then there is a possibility one of these days, just like the five virgins that went away and came back, were not aware when the door would be shut, there's going to be a time in which you and I will breathe our last breath or Christ will split the skies wide open. We do not know how it's going to look. And one thing that it is for certain is that nothing is for certain in this life. Tomorrow is never promised. So we can set our hopes and say to ourselves, well, I'm going to live to the age of 40. And after I reach a certain age, after I have so much money, that's when I'm going to call, call out to God. That's when I'm going to get myself right with God. That's when I'm going to truly pursue righteousness. Well, guess what? There is a lot of, a lot of 
you know, headstones in graveyards all over the world that never reached a certain age because nothing is promised on this earth. But here's the one thing that is promised. You and I will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and he will tell us one of two things, to depart from him for he did not know us or job well done, my good and faithful servant. So my biggest question for us all is what are you training in? Because whether you are training in righteousness or not, you are training in something. If you're training yourself in righteousness and holiness, then I would encourage you to continue to do it. But if you're training yourself and just comfortably living in sin and not truly renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, then I would plead with you to repent of your sin so that you could fix what is broken in your life by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and that you would find redemption. So here's one thing I wanted to share. I was, as I was reading Titus chapter two, uh, my, my Bible that I use whenever I'm writing sermons is a big ESV study Bible. It had a, a wonderful footnote and I want to read it to you. And I want to just encourage you with this. The footnote said this, there is no room for claiming to be redeemed while providing no evidence of transformation. There is no room for it. So, which leads me to how I want to end this. If you are claiming to be a Christian, but there is no evidence of God's saving grace, then I plead with you to call upon his name in true repentance and submission. See, God's amazing grace is offered to us. And then we spend the rest of our lives training in grace. To where you and I spend the rest of our lives truly calling upon his name daily, pleading with him to strengthen us and empower us and, and guide us and convict us and, and save us or wherever you are in your faith. But you and I ought to live lives renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Because as we go on to read in verse 14... It says that Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, Adam read some of it just a minute ago. Paul said that from the foundations of the world, God has He's chosen us for adoption, but that you and I are to be holy and blameless. That you and I are to live holy and blameless. Now, here's the reality. The reality of it is, is that a church this size, there's going to be a portion of people that come in here week after week after week, and they listen to a sermon. They might engage in a little bit of conversation, or they may even provoke their own thinking and think to themselves, hey, I'm going to change this week, or I'm going to do some things this week. But the reality is there's a percentage of people that come in here week after week after week and have no intention to truly renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and repent of their sin, but they will continue to comfortably live in their sin. Now there is a percentage of people that are going to come to faith in Christ. And for those who come in week after week after week and really have no desire to repent and to change, I plead with you and I pray for you that God would truly get a hold of you so strong that you would have no other direction to move, but on your knees and head up pleading for his forgiveness. Now, for those of you who are here and you and you live sometimes a little lukewarm, and then you're on fire, and then you're cold, and you're tossed to and fro, I just want to plead with you that you would truly set your faith fully in Christ so that you could truly set your life fully pursuing his righteousness, living according to his word. Because here's what that parable that Jesus taught about the ten virgins. All ten had a lamp, but only five had oil. Five did not. 
And some scholars will interpret that as if it were, you know, you could use that parable as if all ten represent church-going people. Five have oil and five do not. The oil could represent the Holy Spirit that is given to to God's children. The, The oil could represent the relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there's five that do not. So my plea is that each and every one of us would be people to renounce ungodliness. To know that as a Christ follower, you and I are to live according to his way and his word. Why is that? Why is it so important? Why does it seem like I'm, I'm harping on the same thing? Because you and I were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but by the grace of God, we can be forgiven. If we were to truly cherish the sacrifice of Christ and the eternal life that he offers, then we would despise everything that would separate us from it. But whenever we choose to live in sin or whenever we just do it for a little bit here or whenever we just entertain it for a little bit here, you and I are are actually despising the offering of Christ on his cross. So whenever we choose ungodliness, whenever we choose sinfulness, whenever we choose worldly passions, we are actually despising the blood sacrifice of our Savior. However, whenever we choose Him, then we would actually despise every form of sinfulness or ungodliness or worldly passion on this earth. And he ends this passage of Scripture in verse 15. He says this. He says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So here's what I want to encourage you with and plead with you with and end with is that you and I, if we live for Christ and we truly renounce all forms of ungodliness, if we truly put aside all forms of worldly fleshly passions and all forms of sinfulness, I know that we're all going to fall short. You're still going to make mistakes. I get it. But your pursuit in this life should be to look like Jesus at all times. And whenever we do that, then you and I are able to actually rebuke all forms of false teaching, we are actually able to rebuke all forms of ungodliness. And then there is no one that can disregard us. Why? Because if you and I are right in God's eyes, then it doesn't matter how right or wrong we look at in the eyes of other people. So Paul is instructing this young minister to declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard him. So whenever you truly find yourself living in pursuit of righteousness and renouncing all forms of ungodliness, then you and I are able to live confident confident lives for the rest of all eternity, knowing that it doesn't matter what people say, it doesn't matter what people think, because what matters is the way in which I stand and look in the sight of my God. So my question to ask all of you is, how are you standing in his sight right here, right now. If you were to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ right here, right now, and he were to grant you eternal life into his paradise and heaven for all of eternity, or because of where you are, he would separate himself from you for all of eternity, and you would spend that in eternal separation in a place we know as hell, then I want to plead with you to 
Call upon his name. I want to plead with you if you are living in ungodly, worldly passions right here, right now, and you know that the lifestyles that you are living in and the habits that you find yourself in are not pleasing to his name and actually contradict his word and his way, I want to plead with you to call upon his name and repent of those and to truly renounce them by rejecting him altogether and turning away from them and pursuing him. And if you are here and you have no idea where you are, You're like, man, I don't know. I'm living this. I'm living like that. I want to plead with you to find me or one of our church leaders to maybe sit down, pray, but really discuss where you are because I want no one in this place to leave here until you truly know exactly where you stand. And some people are going to be shaken because I'll be honest, there are moments where I picture myself standing before God, and I know that I have been preaching for six years now, I've been living as as Christ-like as I can, but it still shakes me to my core to know that I'm going to stand before the creator of the universe that spoke all things into existence and give an account for all that I do, say, or think. It shakes me a little bit because I know as faithful as I you know, might be to the Lord, as much faith that I have in Jesus, and as saved as I know I am by the blood of the Lamb, it still shakes me that God's going to view me one day, just me and Him, just as He is with you. Now, the good thing is He's going to view me through the lens of Christ and His blood and His sacrifice and the mercy and the grace. But if we do not have the imputed righteousness of Christ to cover ourselves with, then every bit of who we are is exposed before the Lord, and then we will be held accountable to it. So my question for us all is truly, where do you stand with God right here and right now? Because as we know, tomorrow is never promised. So if you are here today and you are aware that you are living in ungodly, worldly sinfulness, I plead with you to truly repent of it and leave it behind. If you're here today and you are training yourself up in godliness, I encourage you to keep moving forward, to continue in pursuit of his word and his way, but that you and I ought to live with order because Christ died for us to redeem us, to set us apart from the entire world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. So how do we look standing before him right now? Let's pray.